0: Hello, and welcome to this research-focused podcast from RCVS Knowledge. During these podcasts, we'll be covering all aspects of veterinary clinical research, from getting involved in research in practice to discussing published papers and evidence, with particular emphasis on how we can integrate them into our clinical practice. The paper we're going to discuss today is called, Are They Thinking Differently?, The perceptions and differences in medical disputes between veterinarians and clients. This is a subject that's probably of interest to us all, but as the research was carried out in Taiwan, one of the things that we need to consider is whether the results of the study can be generalised to veterinary practice in the UK. To discuss this paper, I'm delighted to be joined by Ellie Russell and Julie Gibson. Ellie worked as a GP in a small animal vet for over 15 years before undertaking a PhD at the University of Lincoln, exploring the role of communication in veterinary patient safety. She's a keen advocate for the benefits of applying qualitative research to understanding many of the complex social situations relevant to how we work in practice. She now works within the VDS training team, heading up their communication, patient safety, and quality improvement training. And helping vet teams to use the VDS's VetSafe adverse event reporting system. Julie qualified from the RVC in 2005. After two years in large general practice, she undertook an equine internship at Leehurst and has been in general practice ever since. In addition, Julie is nearing completion of a PhD at the University of Nottingham. Her research explores practitioners and clients' experiences of adverse events and is developing an evidence-based framework that practices can use to support practitioners in relation to adverse event occurrences. Welcome, Ellie and Julie. Perhaps before we discuss the findings of the paper, it'd be helpful if I just briefly outline the methodology that was used. This study set out to examine vets and clients' perceptions regarding risk factors and possible solutions to medical disputes in veterinary practice. Data was collected using an online survey and collected completed responses from 125 vets and 120 clients. The questionnaire was divided into three main parts. Demographic data, including age, gender, and experience of of medical disputes. Questions relating to the perceptions of risk factors for medical disputes, and questions regarding reducing the risk and possible solutions in medical disputes. While questionnaire studies are a good way of collecting data from a large number of people, they do have some inherent limitations. So perhaps now would be a good time to discuss some of the limitations of this type of research and alternative ways of researching the subject matter. Ellie, perhaps I can bring you in first with your qualitative research background.
1: Yeah, I think surveys are a sort of really common way to try to gather, as you say, the perceptions or attitudes or beliefs of a sort of relatively large number of participants and I think you know one of the reasons that we see them used quite a lot is because from a quantitative research framework yes. um, more responses is better and so you know that certainly is one of the potential advantages that we can be looking across a bigger group of people in terms of trying to understand their perceptions, attitudes, or, or beliefs. But I think what's important to to think about, as you've you've alluded to, Sally, is what might some of the limitations be. And one of the things I noticed in in this paper is it's not entirely clear where the survey questions have come from and what we have is that we've we've sort of presented participants with a predetermined set of questions yeah. so what what we're looking at is is what they think in relation to the particular questions that the researchers have decided to ask and that therefore necessarily kind of limits the amount of of information and evidence that we're gathering in terms of you know what might some of the other perceptions or ideas or beliefs that participants have
0: yeah i would agree completely because they they're quite they've set their parameters they've said what do you think about these factors but they haven't really given anyone a chance to say were there other things and the other thing about qualitative quantitative research these questions have been asked as what we call Likert scale questions so people are asked to grade them from a one to five so they're really trying to turn something fairly qualitative about perceptions into a number now that makes it easier to analyze in some ways but again you're sort of forcing people down a particular route in how you do it. Julie have you got any thoughts on this. Yeah, I mean,
2: I think that the, the authors of this paper in particular have tried to explain how they've come to the um, especially the dimensions um that they have come to, um, because they, they've kind of based it on um a questionnaire that was previously developed, they referenced that, um, and then um focus groups of experts. And um, I think it would really kind of strengthen their study to to just explain. Like you said, how they've come to that, because um, it, what they're really saying in that, I think, is that um, this more quantitative approach has actually been born from some qualitative work. Yeah. Um, and I think that's just a, a really important thing to 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 bring to this yeah. paper, um, and, and kind of understand that background work that's gone into it. Absolutely. I
0: suppose the other thing that comes. With Well, with any research, but particularly with a survey that you've put out online, is who are the people who answer your questionnaire, and are they representative of a wider population? Yes, Chilli.
2: Yeah, I think that... Um, um we we have to um really look at that and i think when they've kind of talked about where they've recruited people from there's some information about where they've you know where they've recruited vets from they've really tried hard to get a really broad demographic they've yeah. put it on social media channels they've done it through various organizations but there isn't much information about where the clients have come from and I think that's a limitation that we we've experienced probably Ellie and I both in our research of how you go about recruiting clients in a non-biased way. I think that is more difficult than us recruiting vets yeah. um, because they are often, it might be quite self-selecting the yeah. clients who will come forward um, and, and be involved in this type of research. So yeah. I think that is an important thing, yeah.
1: Um, yeah, Ellie. Yeah, so I, I sort of, yeah, ag- agree with those challenges around sort of recruitment. And as you say, Sally, who's going to choose to answer this questionnaire and take the time to do that? And what does that mean in terms of how they might particularly read and interpret those questions? One of the things with this study that I found quite interesting was, I think, one of the reasons that they wanted to, as you say, convert some quite qualitative concepts into something they could count Um, by using the Leichhardt scales was to compare veterinary and client attitudes. And then going back to those challenges that that Julie mentioned about kind of recruiting clients, we've got a really similar number of veterinary and client responses. It's 125 for vets and 120 for clients. But when we've then looked at the numbers of those two different populations that have experienced medical disputes, almost all of the vets Mm -hmm. have. Um, 113 but only 33 of the clients say that they've experienced medical disputes and I think there's a you know there's a number of reasons why that might have happened you know it might be around that difficulty in recruiting clients maybe clients are not quite understanding what is meant by a medical dispute as well in the way that vets might be or they might mm. understand that whole area of kind of complaints mistakes negligence or um, misconduct differently so yeah it, it it's kind of it's definitely a challenge and we've got quite a significant difference I think in terms of the two populations, populations. just in terms of what they're saying okay. yeah. around yeah. what they've experienced in in, in yeah. terms of um, medical disputes. Perhaps
0: this would be a really good time just to very briefly outline in your own research and the, the populations you were looking at there, because that gives a, a rather different perspective.
1: Julie, do you want to go first? I can
2: do, yeah. So um, I've done um, quite a lot of qualitative work, um, so focus groups and interviews. Um, there are which which are very um, beneficial for understanding people's perspectives and the emotional aspects of their work their attitudes Um, and you can get some really in-depth understandings by doing that I think that they're often grouped together but you can get different things from those focus groups are um, quite interactive people can bounce off each other and you really get active discussions going and use that to your advantage and understanding what's going on I've been researching um, people's experiences have been involved in adverse events. And um, one thing that we were finding through the focus groups was that people were sometimes reluctant to voice certain things within that forum. So um, I actually did um, quite a number of individual interviews as well so that that removes that limitation. Someone can have a one-to-one conversation about it without that concern about what someone else is thinking. So um, I think there are lots of different ways of doing these things. I think another sort of aspect of bringing in the kind of work that I've been doing is um, more what's termed naturalistic methods as well. So those are just no researcher presence at all. And you're looking at um, data that's already there in, in documents. Um, and also I've looked at some social media content as well. And that's quite interesting because that is just done without the person that's been research knowing that there's a researcher so they they are they are it is completely unfiltered information and i think has done some similar things with documents as well and that can be qualitative or it can be quantitative yeah and and there are really sort of like i say advantages of doing that too yeah and i think the
0: social media bit is quite interesting because probably many people in practice have been on the receiving end of comments on social media that they found difficult to deal with we'll perhaps come back to that later but i think that's a really interesting subset ellie you've also looked at adverse events from a slightly different perspective
1: yeah so so my phd set out to understand the role of communication in um, veterinary patient safety and yes similarly to, to julie used a range of qualitative techniques. I also did some survey based work and I did some quantification of textual data as well. So um, I I combined a little bit of of quantitative approaches alongside the the qualitative research that I was doing. And yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the things that we sort of often do is is think of qualitative research as just one thing, you know, and it's it sort of, it's the opposite of quantitative if you like, but actually okay. it's a really, really wide range of approaches and, and techniques. And similarly to, to Julie, I've looked at existing textual data. So I analyzed um, case records associated with uh, litigation cases handled by the VDS. And I also used both focus groups and interviews um, and often within a study combined focus groups and interviews and I think going back to your sort of point about the the sort of social media I think what's really important to understand is that when we've got a kind of quantitative research head-on if you like and particularly you know thinking about this survey approach We're assuming a relatively unproblematic relationship between sort of what people say and some kind of truth out there in the world. And actually, with qualitative research, what we're really recognising is that what people will say, what people will um, present as the the meaning that they make from the world will be really impacted by the way in which you have those conversations with them. Whether that's looking at textual data, um, I think Julie's work looking at what people say within social media conversations is is fascinating. Um, And as Julie's alluded to, you know, what focus groups do is allow us to actually look at social interaction. So we're we're not just doing a group interview, lots of interviews at once. We're actually looking at how does what one person say impact the way that somebody else might respond so we're starting to dig into some of those sort of social structures that are really important particularly in the context of things like complaints um you know how we deliver care in practice is is you know it's a social exercise so digging digging into that I think is is sort of really really important
0: Perhaps one thing we could unpick a little bit at this point. You've both been talking about sort of adverse events and patient safety, which implies that there may be something that's actually gone wrong. Objectively, we can talk about that. I think probably some people will feel in practice that not all complaints are when they perceive something as having gone wrong. So there's this distinction between where we've delivered what we think is the best care but we've still got a complaint, or where we know something has gone wrong and that's led to a complaint or a dispute. I wonder if we can unpick that a little bit.
1: Who'd like yes. to? Yeah, I can, go. I can start off very briefly just with an example from one study from my research. And then I'm sure Julie will sort of pick, pick up on this. But. In my first study, I was looking, as I've sort of alluded to already, at the role that communication played in um, litigation cases. And I think one concept which resonated for me as a practitioner, and I think would, you know, we would most people working in practice would recognize is that we can have a complaint from a client when we've delivered care exactly in the way that we've intended to. Uh, So there might be that we haven't met their expectations, or they're unhappy with the service that we've delivered. But in terms of what we have planned and set out to do as a practitioner, we have done that. And that's quite different from, and there's all kinds of words, you know, something's gone wrong, it's an incident, it's a mistake, it's an error, it's an adverse event, there's so many different words we can use. But essentially, care has not been delivered in the way that we intended it to be delivered. Yeah, and and again, you know what my research showed was that communication plays a role in both of those things. So communication can increase the likelihood that a client will complain. Communication, particularly within the team. And um, when that's problematic, may make it more likely that we don't deliver care in the way that we intended and we have an, an incident or, you know, an error, if you want to use that, that word. So we, some, we can do something, care can not go the way we intended, and a client may not complain about that at all. And similarly, how we communicate around a complaint or an unintended outcome. Um, has a really big impact on on the client
0: Julie did you want to come in there at all
2: yeah I mean just just really really briefly on the terminology I think we can get really hung up on what we call these things and I certainly have and I'm sure Ellie has as well just going through a PhD trying to get your words right I think adverse event is a great term for it because it just encompasses lots of different things error, actual mistake that's happened. It can just be something that we deem to be a, a, an acceptable complication, but that still comes under that umbrella. So that's kind of the word yeah. that I tend to use adverse event. My work really was quite focused on how these adverse events um, impact vets mainly, vets and nurses, veterinary practitioners, people doing clinical work. Um, And I would say in terms of complaints, this this real theme, this emotional kind of theme that came through with the qualitative work of this impact of adverse events were huge. And then this other theme of experiencing this client complaint ran alongside that. And the conclusion that we really made was that when a a complaint is attached to an adverse event, so something that really has gone wrong as it were, the emotional impact for the for the veterinary practitioner is often a lot larger because they're judging themselves already yeah. whereas those complaints that are driven by other factors and by what the vet perceives to be client different motive from the client are extremely pesky and can really bother the vet or nurse emotionally, but certainly when it is underpinned by a feeling that they have actually done something that's not, you know, optimal, then it is a lot worse for the vet, definitely.
0: I think that takes us quite nicely back to the paper and the findings of this paper, which they looked at under two sort of broad categories. So the first Mm. of those was, what were the perceptions of risks for medical disputes? What were the standout findings for you in this area? We'd like to take that one first?
1: Ellie, I, I'm on. happy to, to start with that. I mean, yeah. I think what, what the authors really tried to pull out here was a significant difference between vets and clients, where what they were suggesting was that, that clients viewed um medical skills. So I guess it does link to what what Julie's just been saying, a a kind of problem around actually how the vet has delivered that care. And maybe if you like, uh, you know, a gap or um, deficit in their sort of medical knowledge, that clients were scoring that as higher in terms of, of a risk as a risk factor for medical disputes, whereas what we had, um, what they're trying to pull out from, from vets, particularly, and I wasn't I wasn't sure that they kind of had big enough numbers to do this, but I think they were trying to draw a bit of a distinction between more experienced vets and um less experienced vets, yeah. and highlighting that more experienced vets put more emphasis on the role of um what their clients perspective was their sort of communication and empathy with with the client i must
0: admit when reading this paper i wasn't entirely sure or whether they were conflating the idea of experience in terms of medical experience with just being in practice longer and therefore more likely to have be experienced medical disputes and complaints in that time and obviously the two sort of go alongside each other to some extent but I think they are actually quite different things um, and you don't have to have one to have the other but I think that was a little bit conflated in in their reporting. Mm-hmm. The other thing I suppose that also brings to bear is whether clients are just latching on to medical issues rather than communication because it's perhaps more socially acceptable, there's no criticism of them involved in that, it puts the responsibility firmly in the veterinary practice where it may or may not be, that's not a judgment, but from their point of view there's a slight social desirability emphasis coming out in their responses.
2: Absolutely, and I think that that is again a limitation of this study because of the way the questions have been asked and what questions have been asked. Um, because, you know, they've concluded that that's placed more emphasis on the attitudes of the clients during the interactions. Well, it's very unlikely that a client is going to (laughs) say that it's their attitude that has driven it. uh, You know, so that's a real sort of limitation of that question, I think. Um, I think in terms of them making conclusions about the perceptions of the risk factors here, I agree with you, Sally, that some of the claims that they're making are conflated. Um, and actually when you do look at it, both um, complaint management and medical expenses were actually the, within the top three, overall four vets yeah. and clients. So although they're saying that there are marked differences between yeah. them, actually the top three things, two of them are the same. Yeah. And it comes down to the way it's managed yeah. and, and it, medical expenses to some degree, so.
0: And I think the other point to note is they converted all these into numerical scores, but actually all of their points scored very highly, sort of four or above. And there wasn't, as you say, a great deal of difference. It might have been statistically significant, but everyone was saying these were important points. It was just slightly different there. What do you think would be similarities or differences in the UK situation? Do you think we'd get very different results if we did a similar study here?
1: Uh, yeah, I, I'm happy to to sort of pick up on that. I mean, I I suspect probably not. Um, I, I, you know, again, going back to Julia's point on social de- desirability and in, in responses for for clients, I agree that I think it'd be unlikely that clients in the UK would be any more inclined to say that the root cause of a medical dispute is their attitude <laughs> um so I, I think that would, would be similar and and certainly from from my experience as you're saying in terms of that you know what's floating up to the top is is around at, is how these complaints are resolved and and I think that you know we definitely know that that has a really big impact here in the UK that, you know, we if, if we manage those complaints sort of effectively, particularly in terms of the way that, that we communicate as a team early on in the process, then it's, it's much less likely that that's going to escalate into a sort of medical dispute. Um, so, yeah. So I think that kind of the kind of complaints management and um, financial resolution, scoring in, in the top three I think that would be similar Julie I don't know whether you disagree or or, or would think that's um that's the case no I, I
2: completely agree I think you probably would get very similar responses to this yeah for sure I think the difficulty is that we often can can um we, we could collect the data on this. We don't have that. I know we're going to talk about this a bit later on, but we don't have a huge amount of research in this area. um, And that's certainly developing at the moment. But even if we did have it, this evidence, one of the most difficult things, of course, is coming up with the solutions too. Yeah. Uh, because there's no easy fix to it, but I know we are going to come back to that.
0: Yeah. Just before we move on to the solutions, do you think there were any important risk factors that they didn't ask about in this study that perhaps was was an omission in their questions? Yes, Ellie.
1: Yeah, one one thing that um, came out in, so they did ask, they did have an open response question around this. Um, I can't 100% remember, hand on heart at the moment, whether that was focused more on the risk factors or the solutions. And it was quite a low number of respondents that answered so i don't want to sort of overly emphasize this but one of the things that came through in that was actually around more i would say the sort of social context around what's happening in practice and some of the vets said well look we don't have time to have conversations where we're more likely to have informed consent or shared decision making And and looking at that wider, you know, what I would say the practice system. So, how are things set up in terms of consult length and organization? Those are the sort of things that are quite hard or I think have been potentially missed in these domains. Yeah. And even just in that really small bit of free text response, we're starting to hear those vet participants kind of talk about the real world that they're working in. Yeah. Of, you know, yes, of course, we can talk about whether or not I've understood my client's perspective but am I being given long enough to do that in the practice system that I'm working in um so I would say those wider systems issues are potentially missing from some of these risk factors
0: yeah. I and I can imagine that most people working in practice at the moment would be able to uh emphasize with that approach I'm sure it's an issue for many people yeah Julie, was there anything you wanted to add before we look at the responses? Um, no, completely
2: agree with Ellie, and that yeah. that free text response section that Ellie just mentioned in the paper, um, that there were you're right, there were only sort of three vets and three clients, or six vets and six clients, or something that answered it. So it was, it was very small numbers, but this idea of the shared decision making was really big. Yeah. Um, but also an area that I'm really quite interested in is um, which comes really is incorporated in that time element is from the client's point of view having that space to actually voice their concerns in a constructive way as well and creating those channels for that to happen yeah Um, and them knowing how to do that in a constructive way because I think a lot of dissatisfaction comes from them just not saying anything and then it escalating and snowballing it could just be kind of discussed early on with yeah Maybe
0: prevent that. Well that leads us quite on to the second part of of the results section which looked at the ways of reducing risks and possible solutions. We've already touched on that a little bit in terms of communication and shared decision making. What again were the standout findings in this section
1: of the paper for you? I think one of the things that, that stood out for me was that they had four dimensions of possible solutions one was attitudes of stakeholders during the um, interaction medical expenses so that sort of financial compensation bit complaints management so helping people um, to manage the complaints better and then they had this quite broad category of education and training and they split that into three sections where they were actually talking quite a bit of, about the format of that training as much as the kind of content of that training. And looking at the um, responses in terms of which of those dimensions got, you know, scored and, and appeared, n- really none of that kind of education and training dimension appeared at all. Um, so it was all the, those sort of other three But then again, you know, touching back to those open text responses, one of the things that that sort of came up there was, again, sort of communication skills training um, and sort of support around that. So, yeah, I sort of found I found that interesting that it didn't come up at all in terms of the the Leichhardt responses in the survey, but again, sort of popped up when you had that more open response way of gathering, gathering thoughts.
0: I did wonder if that might have been partly because the people responding to the questions didn't understand the question in the same way that the people asking the question had intended it, because, yes, I suppose, you know, do you think your vet needs more training? Perhaps if it had been phrased slightly differently about improving communication or would you want to be more involved in shared decision making? And do, does everyone need more training in this? You might have got slightly
1: different responses to the questions. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree with that, and I think there's there's quite a lot of overlap for me in terms of those questions in those those sort of different domains. Yeah. So you know, would you like more support on handling customer complaints in the complaint management bit one, and would you like courses on customer complaints in the education and training? Yeah. Bit?
0: Julie, what what were your sort of standout bits on possible solutions and
2: yeah I mean I'm I am i am always feel like I'm a little bit on the reactive end when these yeah happen just by the very nature of my research but um I think this this point of urging clients to articulate their concerns at an early stage like I yeah. said a few minutes ago um I think that that is just so important um and could reduce a lot of the unnecessary escalation of concern. Yeah the unnecessary emotional impacts that it can have on the vets, on on the nurses, also on the clients. Uh, No one wants to be in that situation and, you know, it turning into something quite adversarial is not nice for anybody. And also, if we have those channels in place, then it's much less likely that we get on those social media channels and and use that as an outlet. So I thought that was a really kind of important thing that they, they brought forward. But that relies on us not being defensive in our actions and and being open to that, which is a tricky one. I thought that in in the free text response, I was really intrigued. And again, it was small numbers that um, they'd had this suggestion of installing surveillance systems into clinics. Um, And I, I don't really have a strong opinion on that either way, but they've kind of suggested that and it's not really been kind of brought forward. So maybe we yeah. could just touch on that a little bit.
0: Yes, I, I suppose was this as a record of what was being discussed so that they felt that they'd got an objective record of what had been said, which I suppose it can be useful, but I do wonder if sometimes the objective record of what has been said is not always the heart of what is the complaint because it's the the emotions and the feelings and the feeling heard. and that might not come over on a video recording. Yes, any
1: yeah, I mean, i I would would totally agree with that. And one of the things that I did in my research, I mean, Julie talked about this importance of sort of defining what we mean uh, in terms of the you know terms that we use. And I looked quite a lot at what do we actually mean by communication? And what theory of communication are we sort of implicitly you often implicitly using when we sort of do research around communication? Um, And just as you said, Sally, you know, very often we might be thinking about communication as information transfer. So I told them this thing. And in that context, as you say, a surveillance video where you can objectively say I gave them that information. And similarly, you know, if we think about informed consent forms, which came up a little bit in this paper, you know, look, they've signed and said that that they've understood this. That kind of information exchange understanding of what communication is, is is very different from communication as a a social activity that creates shared understanding and shared meaning between two participants. And, and I totally agree with you that unless you put that lens on it, you can very easily think that something like a completed consent form or a, a you know, video of an interaction tells you everything that you need to know about the communication. Yeah. But when you switch to thinking, actually, how has this cr- created or very often not created <laughs> shared understanding between those two participants, it's not potentially going to get you very far no so we've talked about what the risk factors are and
0: talked a bit about reducing the risks but the, even with all of those things in place there will be adverse events potential disputes what are clients looking for if we get to that stage because I think that's an important thing to unpick a bit both from this research and from more general understanding. Julie.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think first of all to point out that we haven't actually got research on this at the moment. Um, there is some in the pipeline, so <laughs> hopefully we, <laughs> I will have some. Answer. We will have some research soon um, to kind of put some meat on the bones around this. But there is some sort of good evidence in human healthcare that a, a lot of the time people just actually want acknowledgement that something's gone wrong. They want acknowledgement that they are affected by it as well. And then there are obviously the other things that they want in terms of um, uh, compensation of some kind. But one of the main things that really comes through from practitioners and from people on the receiving end of care that hasn't been optimal, let's say, or an adverse event, is that they just don't want it to happen again to anyone so they want evidence that they've been heard and something has been done about it to prevent it um so I, I think those are the, the main things that are happening for people um but yeah we we don't have that and I think it's quite an interesting thing to explore in the vet profession as well because we can learn so much from human health care but we do have a different model in terms of um, well, the legal status of animals and how that kind of rolls out in practice and kind of our commercial interests yeah. are different, although we, it's quite an uncomfortable thing to talk about, not just from our point of view, but how clients view an animal. In their possession or, or the ownership of their animal and it's really really complex is all that yeah. so it will be really fascinating to find out if there are similarities yeah. and differences between us and human healthcare.
0: and my experience would be that mm. clients can be very variable in this and they you don't always you can't tell by looking at them i was talking to a vet student the other day about sometimes some quite burly tattooed men coming in with their pet reptile and being absolutely Devoted to it, and you might not immediately just make that connection. um But yeah, we you can't know what an animal means to somebody just by looking. You have got to have that communication and try and work things out. Ellie, anything else on what people are looking for?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I was I was going to add that, and this this is not. Um research that that I've published, but data that I looked at, the way that clients talked about the impact of an adverse event um was really a motive. and and, and Sally, as you say, I think that that is one of the challenges is that, We've we've all got very different potentially values that we attach to animals, and they mean different things to us in our lives. But certainly, for a lot of people, a lot of clients in the data I was looking at, they talked very strongly about the emotional impact of these adverse events on themselves, and and you know Julie's work really beautifully also uncovers that emotional impact on vets and veterinary teams, which is also sort of super important. And I think that, you know, that legal status of animals, I think clients are often expecting some financial recompense for that emotional trauma. And that's not what's going to to happen. Um, And similarly, that, you know, that the emotional impact on on practitioners, I'm not sure that we, we deal with that fantastically well. And I'm quite interested in in an area of work in healthcare where they're looking at what they talk about restorative approaches to adverse events. Mm -hmm. So I would completely agree that, you know, what we know matters for families after adverse events is and, and, you know, what I think we want to achieve after adverse events is learning and looking at preventing them. Mm But there is also this side of things where we have to accept that sometimes things will go wrong and harm will happen. And so then actually what what are the restorative responses that both clients and practitioners need? And that isn't to say, no, 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 we don't learn from events and we don't try and prevent them. But I do worry sometimes that if our focus is solely on prevention, we actually may not give enough attention to responding effectively when it has happened. Yeah. And a lot of that is around, I think, restoring relationships um, and managing the emotional impact for, for everybody involved clients yeah. and, and teams and yeah. practitioners.
2: Yeah, I, I agree. And I think in this paper, they do tease that out a little bit um, um, in the, I think it's in their discussion when they talk about third party involvement as well. And um, I think that would be a really interesting um, area of future work as well. I think with the um, kind of growth of our veterinary organizations in terms of size and complexity, what is the role of that third party when these adverse events happen? Is it beneficial to have some, so I'm talking about things like mediation. How necessary is that? And will it become more necessary due to this growth and this change in structure that we have? I'm not sure what the answer to that is, but it's an interesting question, isn't it?
0: Perhaps I can finish by asking you what else you think we need in terms of research in this area. I'm sure there's a lot, but perhaps you could pick out Just
1: one or two. For me, one of the things that would be a really lovely complement to this paper is a a qualitative exploration of clients' experiences and vets' experiences. Um, I think it'd be really fantastic going back to those points that we've made about social interaction and, and sort of focus groups, I don't know how practical or possible it would be, but it would be really nice to look at actually a focus group with clients and practitioners together. And I think the understanding that you would sort of generate by looking at how they interact in discussing the impact would would be really, really interesting. And, and I mean, that actually slightly touches a little bit on what we've been talking about in terms of, of um response to incidents and I'm you know I'm quite interested in action research approaches and and not seeing researchers simply sorry I shouldn't say simply but not just seeing researchers gathering um, evidence and information about the world about our veterinary practices but also as an intervention to produce change and I think that you know practice teams are, are really under pressure and there's you know time is always comes up as a thing that we don't have so I also think there's there's a sort of moral obligation to some extent to make sure that the time that participants are investing in research actually if that's got the potential to produce change for those participants too um I think that's really I think that's really great so I think my two things would be to to think about this through a sort of action research lens and definitely to look at a, a sort of qualitative exploration of, of client and, and vet um, experiences which Julie I think probably uh, sits very nicely in terms of what, what you have been doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <certainly. laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, I completely agree with
2: everything you've said and probably don't have a huge amount to add just just back that I think that often a little bit perhaps afraid of involving clients in our research of our profession um but i think it's very necessary we we definitely need that lens on it to better understand what we need um and how to improve things for ourselves from within as well so completely agree there ellie um and with the the action research kind of approach and involving people in research as a not just for change but as an educational activity as well and I think these podcasts are great because hopefully people will listen and think Mm -hmm. that is something that I could get involved with I know before doing a PhD I was in practice for a long time and I didn't think that research was something for me but I think that if you just dip your toe in the water and get involved in something you would see that it's actually interesting you can learn a lot And the more you do of it, the more you recognize its, its value. So um, you know, don't be afraid to get involved with these projects if you want to.
0: Brilliant, thank you. That was a really interesting discussion and I'm sure it's given our listeners not only a ma- much greater understanding of the subject, but also how we need to consider research using a number of different approaches, especially when considering complex issues. If anyone would like further details of the study, we will provide links to the published paper On the website along with links to Ellie and Julie's papers. If you've enjoyed this podcast and would like to find out more about veterinary clinical research and evidence in practice, please have a look at the evidence and library sections on our website. For more podcasts from RCVS Knowledge, you can find us on your favourite podcast platform.